thanks for tuning in to this episode of MQ Open Mind. We had a couple of issues with the volume at some points in this episode, but it shouldn't detract from our truly wonderful guests. Welcome to MQ's Open Mind, the show where we look at the science behind mental health and its potential to transform lives. I'm Hannah Myerson. There's been a major rise in the number of young people self-harming, and research suggests that more than half of them aren't seeking help. It's clear that self-harm is an issue that we need to tackle, but what can we do about it? And why are instances of self-harm increasing in the first place? Today, I'll be chatting to mental health campaigner Sean and researcher Ellen to try and get to the bottom of these questions. So thank you very much for joining me today, both of you. Come from far and wide, (laughs) representing the UK. And what I wanted to do to start with was just a sort of good old-fashioned rant. I wanted you to come up with the one misconception surrounding self-harm that just really grinds your gears. Sean, I'm going to start with you. Okay. Disclaimer, Sean has a cold today. Yeah, every time I record, (laughs) my throat just seizes up apparently. So I'm going to go with it. So I think there are a lot of common misconceptions. I think one that kind of hurt me a lot growing up was uh, the classic that it people do it for attention Um, and I think that's one that you know people kind of talk about a lot because it's really damaging I think the defense is always that you know it's not the case and it's often not at all but my thinking for this was if someone was doing this to get attention for how they were feeling isn't that terrible why would that mean that they need help or deserve help that's a cry for help so I think we're, we're framing it in such a negative way of oh they're doing it for attention if they are actually harming themselves just to get people to listen that's not something we should just brush off as being attention seeking and Ellen I can see you kind of nodding along you've stolen my rant of the day <laughs> because I agree the whole attention seeking thing is the thing that I most often kind of get asked about still mm. and, and like Sean I think you know it's if it is attention needed if we just change that word it's less pejorative mm-hmm. if someone needs attention because they're in pain because they're distressed then why not give them that um so I, I i totally agree with that i had a second one just to say that it's okay to talk about self-harm and i think people are so worried about talking to anyone who's self-harming young people in particular and i think that is you know so worrying on so many levels that we have so many people young people suffering in silence not feeling they can trust anyone enough to say do you know what i'm really struggling and i could do with a bit of uh, help advice and so on yeah those are the things that do get me ranting on a almost daily basis (laughs) also well we're happy to be able to facilitate that today (laughs) (laughs) now we've got it out um sean i wanted to start by talking to you because you have your own experience of self-harm and i wanted to ask you what was going on in your life when it began and just a bit of background really yeah, of course. It's, it's quite interesting, really, because I really clearly remember kind of the first time it happened. I feel like it's something that will probably stay with me forever. It's, it's really strange because I just remember the kind of the moment before um, and just feeling so overwhelmed. I was studying for my GCSEs and I was just really overwhelmed with that. I've always been a bit of perfectionist and been quite hard on myself and I hear it all the time from my family and stuff when I'm, you know, crying about not getting a first. It's just always been something I've struggled with. So I think that just the pressure of, of, of wanting to do really well during this time where you've also got 
you know, things with, with boyfriends and friends and general growing pains of being a teenager. I don't know where the idea came from, which is the really interesting thing for me. I don't know why that thought came to me, why I decided to do it. I don't know if I saw it somewhere else. It was kind of like it came from me and I'm sure it didn't, but it was more just, just like an overwhelming urge to kind of punish myself, I guess, to hurt myself, which is, it sounds so distressing to say it, but that's the reality of it. And then from then it just became a bit of an obsession not in a in in a way that I enjoyed it, but more that I just couldn't really stop because it really helped me deal with these overwhelming emotions. And that's not to say that it's a good coping mechanism, it's a very bad coping mechanism, but that is often what it is. So after kind of bad period during my teens, then just became on and off. Um, and I've never really had an open conversation with my family, but they know about it and it's got better over the years because often with, with mental health, it's only really easy to talk when you've kind of come out the other side. The urges have never gone away, but I just don't act on them anywhere near as much as I did because I don't want to be getting into that horrible habit again. So it's been, it's been a bit of a, a bit of a journey, I guess. Um, it's so cliche to say, but it really has because I think we're often focused on the idea of like recovery, but with a lot of and with a lot of mental health issues, you might never recover, and that doesn't mean that you don't it doesn't get better. It just means that you might be managing certain symptoms or managing certain feelings for quite a long time. So I was anorexic when I was about fourteen, and that only really lasted like a year. And in terms of you know, I'm, I'm eating. I don't starve myself. I don't count calories and things but the food anxiety and the guilt is still there the body image issues are still there so i think it's important that we stop being so focused on these box ticking um symptoms of things and this idea of being recovered it might just be enough that for now you're keeping yourself safe and it might still cross my mind quite often but it's testament to how much i've improved that it's you know it's so rarely act on. Give into it yeah. So, yeah. Well, I first of all I want to say thank you for sharing that with us and thank you for being so honest. I think you're right. It's not about this recovery and then it magically disappears. Um, but are there ways that you've found to cope with it? Are there things that you've done, maybe like a therapy or medication that you've taken that have kind of helped you throughout the years? Yeah, definitely. Like, as I said, it was very much a churning. I'd do really well and then I'd slip up again. Um, it was only... When I kind of spoke to my mum about feeling depressed, essentially, when I was in sixth form, I think, and I was lucky enough that she paid for me to go to a therapist. But to be honest, my experience with mental health professionals in this space has been pretty awful. I haven't had a positive conversation with any mental health professional about self-harming in particular because it's always just been, so what do you do? What do you do it with? When was the last time? Are you gonna um, kill yourself? Basically, it's just so tiring because there is like an obsession of the details of it and there's never really a discussion about why, you know, why it's happening, the thoughts before you do it. And I'm, this is just my experience. It doesn't mean that this is the case you know, across the whole mental health care, but that's just been my experience. And, and having that can really set you back. I don't want to be thinking about uh, that moment in time. I don't want to be reliving it. So it's, I don't think we have a very good way of, of treating self-harm at all. I think actually what helped me was people knowing and more just not wanting to worry my friends and family anymore. 
that well, that's not a way to cope with the feelings, but it, it was a bit of a push to take a step back. And then obviously therapy has helped with other things that would have been leading to that because um, for me self-harm is very much a reflection of all of my kind of mental health issues that they're all related to intense pressure on myself and low self-esteem and like lack of regard for myself and all of that stuff. So yeah, therapy has definitely helped in general. It's just talking to mental health professionals about self-harm in particular is just not been a good experience for me. I think something that strikes me from a lot of the things you just said is this idea that rather than it being a standalone thing, it's often kind of a symptom of something else, something much bigger. And I wondered if and you can feel free to chip in, Ellen. What questions do you think that they could be asking that will actually really get through to the root of the issues that so many people are experiencing that this is just a manifestation of? Yeah, I personally would just be like to ask what thoughts I had at the time or before, just general questions about what's going on, um, because that would then allow you to explore that a bit more and you might actually get to the real root of the issue and realise that like you said oh this is just kind of a symptom of this other thing or it is a standalone issue itself like because it's you know different from person to person so my experience is not going to resonate with everyone but just simply being able to say I was thinking this this and this about myself and just just focus more on the the internal rather than the external details of it yeah. Alan, what about you? Yeah, I, I think there's a really wise word. And I think, unfortunately, Sean's experience is very common. And I think that's partly because of the way services are set up to risk assess people. And we know that risk assessments aren't very helpful in predicting anything. In fact, it's, you know, it's much more uh, fruitful to just say to anyone, young person or otherwise, you know, do you think you might do this again? Because then you can start thinking about ways forward. And I think you know, what you were saying about trying to to be curious, mm. to wonder why mm. a young person is here in front of you um, having hurt themselves and to be compassionate about that. And I, I'm afraid, you know, there is quite a lot of research that shows negative attitudes towards self-harm in, in particular, and there might be all, all kinds of reasons for that. And one of them might be to do with fear in the person who's sort of doing the, uh, the assessment. So rather than thinking, oh, here's a person in pain, they've made a judgment about what you're doing and why you're doing it without listening. And to think about the situation where people really struggle to find the words mm. and how can we facilitate really difficult, and they're difficult conversations about really strong, negative thoughts and feelings that are swirling around and become, like you said, overwhelming. So what are the ways that we can help young people communicate about that? And that's partly what we've been trying to do in our research group. I'm really excited to hear about that as well. And it is so different for every single person. Um, And that is obviously something that at the moment doesn't necessarily seem to get taken into account. For you, Sean, what do you hope that research in this area can achieve? So from your experience, to start to separate self-harm and suicide because I think they're so often kind of lumped together. There's definitely reasons for that because it's about risk assessment and um, keeping people safe. But I think it's it's quite dangerous to just always assume that it's um, because somebody might want to end their life because I do think quite often they're very separate. It's, it's always just been a way to 
like I said, deal with these overwhelming emotions, to punish myself for imaginary crimes that I've done, for failures, for things like that. It's not been anything related to wanting to end my life at all. It's just been something to do with the pain right now. Um, so I think research would be great to start to separate the, talk, the discussions about that within services and just having open conversations like, okay, so do they need to go to suicide prevention or do they need to go to therapy? And yeah, all the research I think would be great to just focus more on treatments and also with causes, so trying to get away from just focusing on okay, there must be one reason why self-harm's increasing in people. Just be great to start to see the links between, you know, with dual diagnoses. What's the likelihood of people that have certain other mental health issues also self-harming? What's the likelihood of people with a history of eating disorders also self-harming? What does that tell us um, about what self-harming is? And just, yeah, start to... Just look at it more in the context of what's going on. If we could just get away from this obsession with talking about how it's happening. I'm just so sick of people asking me what I do. Um, because it's just awful and it doesn't help. This might seem a strange question, but I wondered if there's anything sort of positive that you've learned or realised that's come from this experience. Yeah, so I think on the whole, self-harm is it's just a terrible experience because there's just so many emotions associated with it, you know, you get to such a dark place to get to that point and then afterwards you're dealing with the guilt about it happening. So I think, you know, to harm yourself, that kind of goes against all biological, evolutionary, you know, drives to keep yourself alive and safe. So it's like to to go against that is, is clearly represents a lack of love for yourself, I guess. It's been good to yeah start to understand why my brain or not why but what my brain is doing and why these things are happening and also it's got me where I am today it's made me much more empathetic person and not everyone will be able or have the platform to talk about these things so if I can just be that voice for people that might not be able to have a voice and they can maybe relate to even one thing I've said or just even just feeling like they're not alone in it um, then for me that's really important I just want to help break down the misconceptions and the stigma and the lack of understanding that is still surrounds a lot of mental health issues so for me that's very positive uh, and you're helping clinicians and researchers as yeah well. and, a whole know, other I do, side i do plenty of talks and often it's the person with lived experience mm. that moves the room and changes mm. the room and changes beliefs and changes attitudes and i can stand and talk about stats until <laughs> the cows come home <laughs> but actually someone's standing up and saying this is my experience you get a very human very human response yeah so moving on to helen I actually wondered why you chose to get into this field of research in the first place and what the research space looks like at the moment. Are there a lot of people or are you one of few? (laughs) Why I got into it is an interesting one. Um, I started life as a musician. So I did a, a degree in music with psychology and my passion for psychology grew through my degree. And it was moving me to a space where I was thinking about clinical or music therapy as a career but I kind of fell in love with the research and I also had some thoughts about you know well if I am a clinician 
what are the big things that I'm going to need to deal with? Well, I could be working with people who feel suicidal and who indeed might end their life under my care. And what would that be like? Right, I want to find out more about that. So there are good numbers of people doing this work. Unfortunately, self-harm and suicide prevention are quite sort of poor relatives compared to other areas in the mental health sphere, which given the need that we've been talking about today, I think is, you know, it's kind of deeply worrying. But I think it's quite, for that reason, it's quite an exciting space because there's an opportunity to be innovative. But ultimately, if we're not doing things that are going to be helpful and appropriate to the people that are going to use them at the end of the day, why are we bothering? That, that's, for me, one of the most important things. I mean, it's really interesting, you know, talking about the separation of self-harm and attempted suicide into sort of different spheres, because for me, that also feels like a misunderstanding from a clinician's point of view, because we know from quite a lot of data that even, you know, what we might call non-suicide or self-injury is actually really strongly predictive of future suicide yeah. attempts. So I think the really important thing is to understand the meaning for each person at each time. Mm -hmm. And that's not to go into why the particular method, it's to, it's to understand what is, the, what is this representing in your life mm -hmm. now. And I think from our work we've seen people move and some of the things that we've been particularly interested in is understanding what, how things change over time. So it might be that someone starts and there's no suicide intent whatsoever. But what we're seeing in some of our words is that it comes in later on. And what we see is a really interesting transition from feeling better after self-harm, so it does something, it's affected a change. What we've seen with our work with young people is that that tends to then kind of get less helpful over time and we see some other things creeping in like mm -hmm. hopelessness and self-worth and punishment and sort of wanting to die. So for me it's about meaning, the why, not the, the what necessarily. Mm -hmm and how it's changing over time. And the whole thing about self-harm going up, we are seeing other things going down. So we're seeing drinking going down, something shifting, and we're not really understanding what, I think. That does lead me on to one of the questions I had, which is, why do you think it's increasing? And given what you've just said, it doesn't sound like you're going to have a solid answer, but I wonder if there are kind of factors that are coming up time and time again that people are associating with this increase. I don't think we know. It may be that we destigmatize it to the point that more people are talking about it. I think, compared, I mean, I'm an old fogey, and compared to what my experience was like as a teenager, and I had plenty of angst moments and wondered where to reach out at certain points, but I didn't have the pressure um, that I think young people are under to achieve in all areas. And I suppose. One thing about the social media kind of environment that worries me slightly is this kind of curated perfectionism. It's a lovely phrase I heard someone say on Radio 4 once. I just think it kind of... Mm. Do, you, yeah, do you know what I mean? So it's that kind of, we have to be perfect at all times and actually I'm not going to show you having just got out of bed with my hair looking like a fright and curate myself to be acceptable. So I, I can't give you the definitive answer because I don't think we know, but I worry that young people don't have the space just to be. I mean, one thing I was reflecting on as you were, you were talking there was the, the degree to which, we, you know, we've done, I feel, an amazing job at starting to break down stigma and barriers over the last 10 years. Have we matched that with support? So when we say to young people, talk about things, mm -hmm. reach out, to, mm -hmm. what is there? Mm -hmm. So is this part of the issue that we're raising expectations amongst young people? And so they're coming forward and telling us 
and actually they're not being listened to, you know, they're not taken seriously, they're not offered anything because, oh, you're doing all right in your exams and you've got friends. So there's, you know, that's crushed, that must be crushing Mm -hmm. and you're feeling so distressed. Where do you take that? In the midst of acknowledging that things are nowhere near where they need to be. So I wondered what you guys are doing at the moment and how you kind of see that feeding in in the future. So we've we've developed this, what we call the card sort task for self-harm, which came out of working with young people in a project several years ago to try and find new ways to talk about self-harm so that they could understand the complexity rather than boiling it down to a single issue and then to see how it's changing over time. So at the moment it's a research tool and I think it's fair to say it's been pretty powerful when we've seen people completing it and they kind of have light bulb moments because we're seeing what are the important transitions that move someone towards doing something and then you can start asking well what might move them in a different direction then um so we get people to map out you know what what are the thoughts feelings events and behaviors that led you to that point so that you can see this kind of sequence over time talking about you know the kind of difficulty in in articulating some of uh, the things that we've talking about i think having the cards almost gives people permission to say yeah, do you know, actually that has happened to me. And we've been thinking increasingly about how we can use this tool therapeutically in clinical settings. And for me, you know, there might be some really tricky things. We've got some really tricky cards and very difficult things that have happened to people. And even on a first occasion of um, meeting someone, you, you might not be able to talk about that, but you might steal yourself to put a card down and go, this has happened to me. I am nowhere near ready to talk about that but to understand where I am now, here, here it is. And I think you know, people have found that quite powerful. Can I just ask about what kind of things are on the cards? So they're, they're loosely categorised into thoughts, feelings and mental behaviours. Mm. And we took them from really high quality risk factors papers. And our advisory group of young people, so we said, what cards are we missing? Um, and you know things like, um, I felt trapped, I did it without planning. I felt sad and depressed. And the other thing that we did was to have blank cards so that if there was something missing, they can just add them in so that, you know, it does reflect what's happened to them personally. And I think it's trying to hold on to that complexity. Many clinicians and indeed researchers kind of feel overwhelmed by the complexity. Whereas I flip it and say, actually, that's opportunity. Look at all the places you can make a difference Mm. for someone. If these are all the factors, right, wow, look at all that opportunity to make a difference rather than thinking, where do I start? But then the point that you can start is with working collaboratively and going, okay, where are we going to go with this? Where do you want to start working? And so it's, it's a much more equal rather than you the therapist and you as the recipient of my great therapy. You know, we'll work together. So I guess it's more collaborative framework and I think then it's sort of, you know, slotting in the evidence-based therapies where we mm. know they're helpful. So whether it be, you know, mentalisation-based therapy or dialectical behaviour therapy or cognitive behavioural therapy, um, that what might be right right for that person. I'm just so excited by the thought of this. Yeah. It, just sounds, it just sounds great. And, and like you said, you know, some things can be too difficult to talk about and that can so often be the case where there's something going on that you just can't quite put into words yet or you don't really have the ability or the strength or whatever to to communicate it yet because maybe you haven't even realised a certain thing yourself. Um, but that shouldn't mean that you don't 
get still don't get access to help just because you know just because you can't communicate what you need or whatever it should be more guided towards opening up a bit what you can in that moment so it sounds great well we hope so (laughs) just (laughs) just need to get it done (laughs) so on that note i'm going to move on to some support questions Um, and i'd be interested to hear from one or both of you the first one is this concept that media often talks about which is this idea of copycat behavior Mm. this idea that perhaps one person doing it might trigger multiple people to do it um i wondered what your perspectives are on that so for ellen um well i guess the evidence is mixed i mean for suicide we know that exposure can be problematic and we see clusters with self-harm i think the evidence is less clear-cut. I mean, I guess we know from some work on attempted suicide that knowing someone who has self-harmed can contribute to the transition from thinking about doing something to acting, but so does impulsivity, so does having a psychiatric difficulty. So it may be a part of the story, for some people, it's not going to be the only thing, and I'm pretty sure that's yeah. sort of what Sean might say. Yeah, I think it's the theme of kind of our whole conversation that's been, we need to stop this desire to box up self-harm as this is what causes it, um, this is why it's happening, and yeah, stop trying to have answers that we don't have, and stop trying to simplify really complex behaviours, and again, it's that thing of not giving children or young people or teenagers credit for the complexity of how they're feeling as someone that's never self-harmed before i imagine it's something that they couldn't really bring themselves to do just seeing an image of something you know it's not it's not enough on its own you've got to have the predisposition to it you're not just going to go copy a behavior like that um it might facilitate it in the sense of kind of speeding up it happening. So I think the media need to be more responsible when they talk about mental illness and stop trying to have the answers that they just frankly just don't have. Um, Another question was from a mother who recently found out that their child had been self-harming and she wrote about really struggling with knowing how to respond in a way that would be helpful rather than hindering. Yeah, I mean, it... It's kind of gutting to hear it because I know that my mum's been in the same situation. So I think I'd start by saying you're not alone in feeling like this. I think anybody that knows anybody that's self-harming will experience this hopelessness and this distress at not knowing how to help. We can't brush these things. My advice would just be to just be there for them as a mother in the way that you usually are in the way that your relationship usually works. The biggest revelation has been telling my mom she doesn't need to offer solutions, she doesn't need to fix it for me. It's not hers to fix. All I need from her is to listen and to be there when appropriate and not trying to come with a folder of answers, (laughs) just showing that you're there for them, that you're there to listen. Um, that they can talk to you about this without any judgment. I think you just have to try and hold back the distress you feel about it happening because that's just going to add to the guilt that they feel. Just go to them and say, how can I help? What would help you? Are there things we can do? Like, for instance, should we throw away all means? Should we 
have a word you use or a thing you say when it's happened and we can go and have coffee. Just ask her what would help, you know, um, and what would help when it does happen because the likelihood is that it will happen again and it can get better but you you just need to know that it's not going to stop right away. It's going to be a slow process but as long as you just keep showing up for them and be there for them, that's enough. Yeah, I mean all of that from a research perspective as well and, and for that very reason and I sympathise, I'm a mum and I can imagine the swathes of guilt and you know all these also intense emotions that, mm. that you know anyone who's got a child who is self-harming must be feeling. We know that people can recover whatever that means to them and that is a really kind of broad term and the the non-judgmental listening being there quietly I think is more powerful than people can ever imagine and I would say if there's one light motif that comes across in the research I've been doing in the last <coughs> 20 years on this is just listen actively and carefully. We've actually developed a leaflet which we call it's okay to talk about self-harm which has some practical suggestions about how to have these conversations if you're worried about someone. So we've got some sort of practical advice it's all evidence-based based on our research and other people's and if it's helpful I can share a link to that it's freely available. That'd be brilliant I think we should. Use. There's also a really good resource called Health Talk Online um, from the University of Oxford where they talk to parents of young people who self-harm. So there's some, you know, to, to know that you're also not alone, that there are other parents that are going through this um, and you need support yourself. If you're supporting someone yeah. who's struggling with self-harm, you need to equally support yourself and, you know, do the basics to make sure that you're looking after yourself so that you can be that support for, for that person. Yeah, and also just the fact that you are worried and you've asked this question and, and you're seeking out ways to help, that just shows how much you care. So it's important to remember you're not a failure, you're not a bad parent, you know, you are a good mom. So I think just not being hard on yourself about it is, is also really important. Yeah, I feel very moved by those answers because I think it's all too easy to project what's happening onto yeah. yourself. For me, what I've taken away from this conversation is just this running theme of how individual it is in all aspects You've mentioned a few resources that are helpful. Um, I wondered if between the two of you, we can kind of end on a summary of what is currently available out there. Um, And at least that gives people the option to start exploring if they're in a place where they want to seek help. I think as far as we have to go, it doesn't mean that it's, it's not worth seeking help. Just try something because something will help. So if you don't feel comfortable talking to a stranger about self-harm because you're going to be asked these difficult questions, it's okay not to do that yet. And I think what can be really helpful is reading other people's experiences. Kind of seek out positive online communities of people that talk have lived experience and go to events um, where they talk about mental health because all of these things are going to help you with your own understanding of your own experience um, and like I've said, seek out someone you trust to say, okay, I'm going through this, I want you to kind of monitor me in a way so I can come to you and talk about it. Don't be discouraged that certain GP appointments or certain therapy or whatever might not help because that doesn't mean that you shouldn't keep trying to get the help that you're deserving of. Yeah, I, I mean, I agree. I think the, the third sector is doing an amazing job with resources. Um, there are some really good books out there. Mm-hmm. Um, one recently published by Professor Alan Howes, 
which is called Understanding Self-Harm, and it's written in a really accessible way. Um, in practical terms, there's the Shout Crisis text service, so that's perfect for people that really struggle to talk. You can text and have contact with a therapist in that way. Then the next step, if you're thinking about approaching statutory care, I would always say go prepared. Probably GPs don't like us Googling. But, you know, I would go armed probably with a systematic review, and there are out there saying, look, there are evidence-based therapies that might help someone in my situation. What have you got? Mm, You know, and just sort of being proactive, really. I think we can all agree that trusted websites like the NHS or uh, Mind have really good information pages to start with. Absolutely. And for young people, the mix as well um, are really good to go to because they have specific forums. So there is one on self-harm. And again, they have text-based therapy. So online text-based things could be less kind of traumatic than than having to say it out loud if you're not quite ready for that. I'd also just want to end on a bit of a message for anyone that's that's struggling or knows someone that is struggling with self-harm that you really deserve to get better and I think it's it's just manifesting that that idea that if you feel like you need help then you need help. It's 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 so easy to err on the side of, of, of feeling like it's not bad enough to seek help but if you're having urges and acting on urges to to cause harm to yourself it doesn't matter what that looks like you're so worthy of support and you can get it and just make tiny little steps whatever that looks like this will be something that you'll look back on as as a dark time in your life but it doesn't have to define it you just said it better than I ever could so I'm not going to say much more but I did want to say a huge thank you to both of you and I'm really glad that we are ending on that message of hope and in enough time I'm confident that people won't have to have that many setbacks before they actually get the help so thank you for all the work you're doing Sean thank you for all the work you're doing as well Um, And thank you to Herbert Smith Freehills who are hosting us here today. There are many organisations that we've spoken about that can help you if you are feeling triggered by anything in this discussion or if you're having worries about uh, feeling like you want to hurt yourself or if there's someone that you love who is going through that. So please do give them a call. And thank you for listening.